Okay, we have got so much to try to cover. So I think what we should do first, uh, first of all, is just kind of recap the the contextual setting for this book. We know that we're in what kind of literary work? What is our literary form? It's historical and it's a record of a person's life, right? Um, and who wrote this? Luke and. Um, how did he come by way of his information? Through eyewitness. So basically he interviewed. He was like a reporter running all over the place, interviewing everyone who these events literally happened to. And so he got first-hand eyewitness record, just like you would if you were preparing for a, a legal court system of some kind. So we know his accounts, therefore, when, when you compare as we have done, the, even again this week a little bit, some of the synoptic comparisons. Um, what, how do the variations in, in things from one record to another, how do, how do you interpret those? I mean, how do you feel about when a certain part of a verse is missing or another part is added in? I mean, what do you think about that? Okay, very good. I, I love that. As a matter of fact, you know, one of the things that they say about eyewitness accounts, if there's too much exactness in, I, I, I watched this Joe Kinda on, do you guys know who Joe Kinda is, on TV, and he, he does all the, he's an investigative, um, it, out of Colorado, he's a, a p policeman, or a detective, and so he investigates these murder mysteries, and one of the things I remember him saying just this week, when, and it made me think of this, was if the eyewitness records are too exact, it, make, it makes you wonder if there was collaboration. And so, although we do have um, things that are so similar that there's no denying that they are the exact record, the same account, but there are also enough variations in it that you can see its perspective, right? And the other thing you have to keep in mind with, with Luke when you're comparing Luke to the others is Luke is not himself saying, this is what I saw, where the others are, right? He is saying, this is what I was told. And so he has actually perspectives from probably hundreds of people right, as opposed to the perspective of the one person to whom it happened. Um, I know that when it comes only from my perspective, it's 100% correct. And if you have a different perspective, then that's just your, your perspective, right? I'm, I'm kidding, right? But with Luke, you have to think about the fact that he did go out and interview so many people, so he is receiving information from all these different um, mindsets, which I think is actually really enhancing to add qualities into the narrative when you make these observations synoptically. And, but it is very important that you always keep in mind he is, he is doing it through eyewitness accounts and thereby there are going to be some variations in the perspectives. Um, there are a couple of minor things when you go through the, the records that we even looked at this week where there's slight, just a small amount of differences, but they enhance, they don't detract, okay? All right, so um, that's kind of the, 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 the 
literary setting of, of what we're looking at here. Now let's go back and talk about specifically who is our major subject in this narrative. Obviously, it's Jesus. Now, what are we seeing at this point about Jesus? What kind of things have you, have you been impressed with that seem to be coming up over and over? Okay, so his, his characteristics of, or qualities of compassion. Wow. The, the powers and the miracles to me are just uh, amazing. What does that tell you from your perspective when you think about a person who has the kind of power he does? The power to do what kinds of things? Raise the dead for Pete's sakes, right? I mean, I mean, so if he can raise the dead and he has that kind of power, then what is the impression that you have? Now, if you have an eyewitness of someone that recorded that and you're b believing the eyewitness is truthful, what do, you, what do you now think about Jesus specifically? Yeah. In, in the end, there's only one who has power over life and death, right? Um, this is one of the reasons I really do love that um, John chapter 2 passage with Nicodemus where he says you could not do the things that you do except that God be with you. Now, in the end, what we know about Nicodemus is he came into faith. And that, as a matter of fact, there's a book, I don't know if you know that, but he wrote his own gospel, Nicodemus. It didn't make it into the written gospels, but there is a gospel called the Gospel of Nicodemus. And he gives his journey and his story perspective. It's not, it's fun to read. It's, it's interesting because he gives you extra little insights. Now, you have to keep in mind it's not divinely inspired and it did not make it into the gospels, but um, there is a record uh, by Nicodemus. Um, there's a lot of those out there, by the way, if you didn't know that. There's just enter in, Google in the gospel according to, and then it'll start popping up all kinds of names. All right. So, so we see then that our focus is on Jesus. We see it's about the fact that he has, he has these qualities of compassion and love and mercy. And by the way, does it, it seems like he certainly has the, the, uh, the come on in. He, he has the gifts of helps or something going on there, right? Like everywhere he goes. Um, one of the things I've, I picked up on was um, how many people are, seem to be around him all the time. Did you notice that? Great crowds everywhere he goes. And so we haven't hit as many of them yet, but there are places where it will also say, um, and he went away to, uh, uh, to an isolated place to pray. And I went, it's no wonder. Because he was surrounded by people 24-7. And in the course of one day, I thought, you know, he's, he's a little bit like a mom. You know, you're on your way to the kitchen to do an event, like do the dishes or, or sweep them off the floors. And along the way, you get distracted with this little thing and that little thing, right? And you're having to tend to stuff along the way. That's what happened in the life of Jesus. Everywhere he went, he was being basically interrupted, kind of, in his flow. But... He, what his response was? He, he stopped and he took care of all their needs, whatever the needs were. He met their needs in the in the moment that they needed it. All right, so we're getting a pretty good grip on um, kind of the flow here and the events that are taking place. So now we're at a place in this where we're seeing Jesus coming full bloom into ministry. 
prior to this, it's like all the things that were leading up to it, the preparatory things and the things that had to occur literally from, the, from his birth on. So let's just dive in and let's see if we can also kind of lay down some um, points. One of the things that we want to look at is the subject of the parables. Now, you all did this in your homework. I don't remember which day it was, but... Um, where she asked you to look at Matthew 13, Mark 4, and then, of course, we look at it in Luke 8, um, where he, it, it, uh, he mentions the parables and the purpose of the, of the parables. Um, boy, I wish I had another board. <laughs> I need one more place to write. Okay, so you're going to have to write this down for yourself because I don't have a place to write it. Okay, tell me what did you learn from looking at those synoptics concerning the subject of parables and their purpose. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Because we're going to hit lots of parables in this book, right? And so if he uses them so often, the question should be why, right? Okay, very good. Now, um, by definition, how do you define what a parable is? It's a story. Okay, with a spiritual meaning. And in what way is it conveyed that makes it more clear to us that we can understand who have ears to hear? There you go. Yeah. So what God actually does for us, Jesus does for us in these parables, is he takes something that is spiritual and might be a little fuzzy to us otherwise. And he brings it to an earthly perspective. Now, for you and I, in our century, reading some of the parables that he gives to us, we still have to have an explanation, right? Because they're not as common to us in our current history. But at the time, Jesus was using things. Remember like we did the one with the wineskins, right? You know, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. Why not? What happens? They will burst. Now, how many of us have had personal experience with operating with wine and wineskins? None of us. You know, we go to HEB and get ours in a glass bottle with a cork, right? Or a screw-on lid in most cases, right? So... <laughs> Well, I don't know. I just cook with it. So, but but the point is, if it's a if it's an earthly story, it's brought to earthly story for the purpose of what? Why does he use sheep and water and bread and um, fruit and wine skins? Why does he use those things for us to make it understandable? So. So sometimes it's interesting to me how, did you notice how the disciples, sometimes they were like, uh, about the seeds, right? The sower and the seeds. What, what was that about? They had to have it explained, right? Why do you think that happened with them? If, if he took something that was common and understood to them, why did Jesus have to explain it? Okay. Right. I, I, I don't know about you, but I could imagine myself being in that moment and going, okay, so why didn't you say it plainly? And I think there's actually a, a passage one time, I remember it, where he did, he did say, I tell you now plainly, 
right? So I do know that there had to have been times when, when the, the disciples, the followers of Jesus Christ, those who did have hearts to hear, often would be confused by why the parable. So why the parable? Okay, why would he want to... All right, okay, so why would he need to hide some of these mysteries from those with a hard heart? Right. Exactly, because in his ministry, what was he actually declaring that would have made them really angry? I am God. I am the son of God. I am the expected one. And knowing that, um, why would that threaten them? Why would they be so angry if, for him to make that claim? First of all, these are the prophetic utterances of Isaiah and Malachi and, you know, D Psalms of David and all these. Why would they be so against hearing that Ezekiel and Jeremiah's words were coming to fruition. Okay. There was a problem with, part of it had to do with what part of the, the prophecy was becoming true, right? And in, in Jesus' work, in his first coming, there, there was a, uh, a distinction between what they were expecting and what was coming into fruition, right? Right. Okay, you bring up a really good point. So what had happened in Judaism on the whole through the generations, particularly we'd had, what, over 400 years of silence, right, on the part of God. What, what had been going on with these Pharisees and Sadducees during those years? Yeah. Right. Right, there you go. Now, see, this is really important, I think, although most of you in this group, I think, do know this, but I do know that those who are young in their spiritual growing, you know, their deep Bible study, to understand that Jesus was a threat, and he was primarily a threat because of their political power and because of their, their standing in the community. What was going to happen to them and their, sta and, and their role, their spiritual role, in Israel, if Jesus is who he says he claims to be. Oh, yeah, there you go. Not much need for that priest if you aren't doing that any longer, right? And and then there's this little issue of the law itself of, you know, uh, um, how, how many miles can you, the legalism that they added into it, right? And so Jesus is coming, threaten them on, a multitude of areas, but primarily pride and finances. Those were the two main, and are those not what it mostly boils down to even in our world today as the issue when it comes to political power or um, uh, uh, e even leadership power, even in churches it can happen sometimes. It can, boils down to, you know, who's got the power and, and what, how much money is going to be affected or how is the money going to be affected, right? I know everybody's not in their head. <laughs> I'm like, yep. All right, so, all right, so that kind of 
helps us to look at the fact that there are basically two purposes for those parables to be in there. Number one, it's, it's to hide full understanding from those who do not have hearts to hear it. And that's an important thing to understand about parables. Um, one of the commentaries I read on this had mentioned um, how this might actually also have been an act of mercy on the part of Jesus to speak in parables in this way because of the, the fact of accountability. In that day of accountability before God, we are accountable. What are we accountable for? What we know. And so if at least a portion of this were cloaked from their full understanding, they're still accountable for having rejected him, obviously, right? Because the whole point that we're going to look at in the, in the, 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 the sower and the soils is which kind of soil are you, and whichever soil you are is going to result in whether you believe or you don't believe, right? Um, but the fact that, that they are one day going to face the judgment throne of God and be held accountable for every word that, is, that comes out of their mouth, right? And every deed that they do or don't do and all the knowledge that they have or don't have. Um, there was a verse that, um, I don't know if he gave it or if it came to me, I can't remember now because it's been so long ago, like at least three hours. But uh, <laughs> about, about when Jesus speaks about um, Chorazin and Bethsaida and how if the things have been taught in you that have been taught in in them, and it had to do with the accountability of what they knew. And I thought of the next thing that came to my mind was about this deal with Nazareth. Nazareth rejecting Jesus, how serious is that problem for them as a people? And why? Everybody's nodding. Why, why is that a huge deal? That Na what was Nazareth? His hometown. This is where Mary was. This is where he was brought after, as a baby. This is where he grew up, right? And so what kinds of things would Nazareth have known? Huge. Oh, yeah. Okay, doggone it. Robert, why did you have to go there? <laughs> okay, I was, I was kind of reeling it in. <laughs> I threw the line out. I was just waiting for the fish to catch it. Okay, very nice. Yeah, because the, the, the truth is those who have ears to hear and a heart to hear and a, and a longing and a hunger, and it makes me go back to the, the blessed bees and the woes that we looked at back in chapter 5 or 6, right? And the, the, those who really do hunger are going to find truth. Those who really want God in their life and are seeking after him, God will meet them. It's not going to be cloaked to you as a parable would be cloaked to a person with a mind whose mind is shut. You and I hit parables. Do not get frustrated. If, if you hit a parable and you're not understanding, it's not because you don't know the Lord. It's because the parables were intended for the audience that understood those things. So for you and I, we have to investigate a little bit in order to come to a fuller understanding of some of these parables. Uh, you, uh, we kind of giggle, or I have anyway, when I've read some of these parables, I was going, yeah, that's plain as mud, right? Uh, why did you use that parable if that was supposed to make it, you know, this heavenly truth so clear to me? Because it's now not clear at all. If you'd have talked about, you know, Austin traffic or, you know, <laughs> a microwave oven, I would have got it, right? But no, he's using other kinds of, of imagery, which we have to research and dig through to figure it all out. 
No, absolutely. If they, yeah, if they, if, yeah, well, really, and what was written in their scrolls through Isaiah and Malachi and Je uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, those things were plain. They weren't written in parables. They were historical documents written in plain English. So they knew about the coming Messiah through what lineage he would come through, through and what city he would be born into and what, you know, all the different things, the different uh, uh, markers, the signs of who he would be when he came. And as a matter of fact, on top of that, they had the temple. What did the temple do for them? Gave total picture of the of the son of the sacrifice of the the suffering savior that would come. Now they didn't like that part of the picture, and they tended to just kind of uh, sweep it under the carpet. But I'm telling you, it was plain as day for them. There was not those things were not written in parable. Form. They were written in plain English to them. So now that we've talked about that, I think to me it's an important thing just to understand that the parables were actually written to make it clearer to those who actually wanted to understand spiritual truth. He took something that for us, because we've not been in the spiritual realm yet, he brings it down into the earthly realm for us. He gives an earthly example of something so that we can relate to the heavenly. So it's, it truly is intended to make it clearer for us who have ears to hear. Okay? Now, when it isn't clear, it's because we're in a different time in history and we have to research it for us now. But back in the day when it was written, clear, clear, clear. Okay? So the interesting thing to me is when, it, when the disciples said, well, you know, he said to them, how is it that you don't understand this? And how are you going to know the other things that I will say to you in parables if you don't get this one? He was really rebuking them to say, look, you need to put on your, on your, um, it, your, your thinking caps here. You, even as Christians, sometimes we can shut down. We can quench the spirit, as they say sometimes, or we can, um, we can become dull of heart because we become apathetic maybe about our spiritual growth or about our uh, hunger. You know, we do go through ebbs and flows, and that's normal because we're human, right? And sometimes we're on a mountaintop and we're drinking it in and everything that comes at us, we get it right? And then we hit a lull, and all of a sudden, we're just not seeing it. So what Jesus is doing is he's stirring them up. You know, I kind of think of that verse as kindle afresh, the gift of God which is in you, right? He wants them to kindle up their, their hunger and their thirst for God, and to pay attention to the fact that what he's teaching are spiritual truths, and he's using earthly things to teach them spiritual lessons. So he's saying, make the connection, make the connection, I'm doing this for you so that you understand better what you cannot possibly understand otherwise. Isn't that cool? Don't you like parables a whole lot better now? <laughs> because now you understand they're actually intended for our benefit. And once we understand the parable for us, we, we do have to dig it out more, more seriously because of the, the historical time between when the things were said and what we understand today. But nonetheless, once you research it, it's clear, 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 okay? All right, so that was the first thing I wanted to 
clarify for us as students because from this point on forward, we are going to be hitting these parables all the time, and God has given them to you and I as a blessing so that we can grab hold of spiritual truth on an earthly plane much easier. Those who do not have ears to hear won't get it anyway, right? And, and Jesus intended for them not to for the fact that I think uh, to protect his ministry at the time particularly. Um, but also this other commentary person threw this little nugget out there and I thought, you know, he might very well be right. It doesn't say it anywhere in scripture, but the idea that there's a day of accountability and the fact that they are partly cloaked could be have been an act of mercy on doesn't that sound just like God, that he would want to be merciful even though he knows they're going to be judged? He doesn't want to give them more judgment than he has to because he's a God that loves. So maybe that's it, but anyway, it's just another thought. Okay, now the other thing we want to look at is um, as we are going through chapter, let's start with chapter 7, we see, um, I'm going to try to give you an outline on this as easily as I can, but it, it's going to be tough to get it all up here, but we'll try. Uh, chapter 7 opens with an event, verses 1 to 10, and what is our event there? Yes, and what does he do for this centurion? Okay, so Jesus heals... centurion's slave now what insights did you draw at, uh, or servant you could, I could you could put it could say slave or servant depending on your translation I should have put servant down okay um, what were the insights that you saw in that particular record what was what stood out for you what did you learn about Jesus what did you learn about um, why this author may have given this record to us Isn't that amazing? Yes. Yes. Okay. First of all, he's just a man. <laughs> right. Right. Now, we don't know who the slave is, what... what um, uh, nationality or anything like that, but we do know about concerning the centurion that more than likely he's not Jewish, more than likely, although it doesn't say that. The fact that he's non-Jewish, he's a centurion making him, he's basically, he's a Roman soldier, right? Um, these qualities about him ought, right off the bat would make him t typically or stereotypically what? Offensive to the Jewish people on the whole. And yet, what is the testimony about him? Isn't that ama amazing? This man, we see that he was respected. He was kind. He was generous. He was humble. He was compassionate. I mean, I don't know about you, but I made this nice little list, on, you know, in my observation worksheet here because I thought, this man's character is actually quite stellar. And as a matter of fact, Jesus makes a statement about him in verse 9. What does Jesus, when, when he views the man's faith, what does he say about him? 
it, now there's the contrast, and this is what makes me pretty sure the centurion is not Jewish and is not of the Israel nation. Is he says uh, in he says it specifically, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. So what he's saying is, this man is outside of Israel, but but he lives he lives within Israel, but he is not an Israelite. And so it's really interesting that he makes this comparison. So, somewhere I read, too, that there's really only twice where Jesus uses this word marveled. And the, the other one was in a negative. He marveled basically at their unbelief. But this is the one where he marvels at his faith, right? Now, um, when you look at... Um, where was I going to go with this? Um, oh, um, how might this or does this in any way tantalize your thinking to go back into Genesis where God is promising to through Abraham he is going to bless him and then bless who also? All the nations of the earth. It just caught, popped up to me that here was one of those moments where we see all nations through the seed of Abraham, all nations of the earth are being blessed. The, the slave, if he's not J Jewish, he may or may not be, we're not sure. Um, and the centurion, who's this Roman, and we see the, him being blessed through Abraham. He literally becomes a child of Abraham through his faith in this moment. Um, that's declared for us and that Jesus recognizes it and he affirms it. So what is it that caused Jesus to grant this man his petition? Right. So what do you call that when you believe? There you go. Faith. Well, yes. Yes. That is interesting. Did you find that to be a consistent pattern in all of the times where Jesus reaches out and makes a healing? In all of the records, even though there were often issues, like, for instance, the woman who was weeping at Jesus' feet and wiping his feet with her hair, and he's, she's anointing his feet with the perfume. Uh, and and yet, yet God and Jesus speaks about her great love and how much she loves because the one who's, you know, forgiven much, right, loves much. But yet, is it because she loves him so much? Um, is it is it the obe the actions of this woman, the things that she did? She brought in the perfume. She washes his feet. She, she did all these lovely things for Jesus. Is that what's what caused Jesus to see her faith? No. It's her own heart condition. He looked at her heart, and he said, this woman's faith has healed her. And he says, he says your, your faith has healed you, and go in peace. And so we, we see over and over in the accounts that we're going to be looking at today where the bottom line, it's not what we do, although our response is expected, right, acknowledged and expected in, in these records, but it's not what the people did that caused Jesus to respond to them in forgiveness and in healing, but rather it's because of the faith that they displayed in believing him, right? Okay, so that's, that's 1 to 10. Any other insights or thoughts you want to cover there? Yes.
Yeah, that's okay. Yes. Yes, again, it it just shows again that all nations of the earth shall be ple- shall be blessed in you and in the seed, right? Through the seed all nations of the earth will be blessed. And so in there there's an example of those from another nation being blessed because of um their faith in him. Wasn't that interesting? And you know what? I meant to pick up on that. And, there, and we see it again in another one with Jairus' daughter, you know, where Jesus is healing someone else on behalf of the faith of the person praying. How does that affect us in our prayer life for people who are sick or people who are ill or people who have got distresses of various kinds and we're praying for them? Isn't that encouraging to know that God responds? Uh, what is it in James that says the prayer the prayers of a, of a righteous man are effectual. And I thought, wow, this is an example of that. James, I, I should write that in there on a cross-reference on my, you might want to do that. But J, is it James 2? Somebody know that one? But anyway, yeah, don't want to put you on the spot, or me, because <laughs> I don't remember where in James. It's just, I think it's in James 2. All right, so, all right, now let's move on then to the next paragraph in uh, eleven. Through 17. Now, my my divisions might be slightly different from yours. Don't let that concern you. I tried to, to stick with as much as I could with what she did here. Okay. What did we see in 11 to 17? Mm-hmm. So he's he's passing through. He's um, it says that he went to a city called Nain. Now, Nain is. Um, very common Middle Eastern city name. That's why um, when, I, when I see it, I call it Nain because that's how it's pronounced in most Middle Eastern cities. And I, when I was reading up on it, it actually says that today it's very Islamic. Um, a lot of Islamic people are dwelling there. It's kind of like, um, um, shoot, I'm, I'm drawing it with Canaan, for instance. The Palestinians are in there. Anyway, so he came to this place called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, and again, accompanied by a large crowd. So he's passing through, and as he approached the city gate, what happens? Isn't that interesting? Obviously, the dead man did not say, would you please help me, right? But again, he's operating on behalf of, in this case, the mother didn't even ask. His own compassion, so he sees this situation, and he knows the distress of it, right? Again, we're back to the great high priest who understands our infirmities. He lived this life. He walked the journey that we walk. He understood um, really the distressful place that this widow woman was going to be in with no husband and no other family, and this was her only son. And so now he is dead. And she is alone, and so he had this great compassion. So what does Jesus do? He raises him from the dead. So, What did you say? Yeah, slightly bigger. Going from healing a man who was sick to now raising someone from the dead. 
<laughs> yeah, I know. He's not just dead, he's really dead, and he's all wrapped up, and he's ready for the, for the, uh, the he's in the funeral procession at this point, and he's being raised from the dead. You know what I, I am dying to know is what the conversations were after these dead people rose. Because they've been dead, sometimes for a few hours, sometimes for a period of days, like, you know, at least 24 hours in the case of this, this man at least. Um, I do know that generally by tradition, they like to have their dead people taken care of just almost immediately within, within a 24-hour period of time. Um, because they don't embalm. That's right. They wrap them with with uh, ointments like myrrh and frankincense, right? Uh, but myrrh primarily. Okay, so he. Wanted, I'm just. You know, th there should have been books written back then about my my death experience, right? Wouldn't it have been lovely to hear what he had to say when he came back? I can't wait when we. Yeah, yeah, and I'm thinking, uh, he's probably going, whoa, that was cool, guys. You should have seen, I saw Father Abraham. I got to talk to, you know, Elijah, and I got to talk to Jeremiah, and I got to, I mean, who knows what he's, or, well, ma yeah, maybe, okay. Burst my bubble, why don't you? That's true. He might have been in, the, in Sheol, in the, in the place of torment, with the rich young ruler, and maybe this, maybe he changed his whole life. Maybe he came back a transformed man. Maybe he came back and really put his faith in Jesus. Who knows? We can we could make a whole movie, and just make stuff up. It'd be awesome. But when don't y'all just cur are you curious at all about what these dead people thought and what they had to say when they came back from the dead? Be very interesting to know. But that, did you notice Scripture never tells us? Not one record, not one account where someone comes back and speaks about being dead and being raised from the dead and what they said. Even in the New Testament when Jesus is resurrected and the tombs are, are opened and many people are risen from the dead on that day, no, there is no record of any interviews of any of those people. Yes, it is, Kathleen, and I want to know why. <laughs> It's not for us to know. I'm ready to, I, I'm just going to be one of my questions when I get to heaven. All right, come on. Ta, you know, I want to hear, and, and I want to hear the stories of the bosom of Abraham. I can't wait. We're going to be getting there in Luke. We are going to be studying the, the rich man Laz, at Lazarus and their death and going into um, uh, Hades or Sheol or the, you know, the place of torment and the place of the bosom of Abraham. So we're going to get to study that out again together. For those of you who've done that with me before, it's a fun study. Okay, let's go on to 18 to 23. That's a short little, that was a short one. On the, uh, it didn't take a lot to really examine that being him having raised that woman's son. What was the response? Yeah. Did you guys notice that the responses in some of these cases when he performed miracles, how different they are from some of these people group? Like, remember the pig issue when he cast the pig, the demons out? They asked him to leave town. Would you please go? 
they were fearful of what had happened. And it just makes me wonder what was going on with those people that, I don't know about you, but if I had somebody who was that powerful speaking a word, I would want him to like, be my best friend because I could just use him for all kinds of enemies. <laughs> Yes, yes. I it is. It is. And I do think that when we when we get there and we look at the parable of the seeds and the soils, this is going to I think become much more evident to us. It really all depends on the heart of the people how they respond. And um I do also find it interesting that it seems like there's either a pretty good group of people that believe and they seem to come alongside and they kind of follow him in crowds but then there's also lo uh, larger masses of those who don't and it's some of times it's whole cities like Nazareth and they chased him out they were going to kill him right yeah maybe but you know I'm sure that he had explained it right yeah and you have to remember, again, their understanding from the Jewish mindset, who has the power to do those kinds of things? Only God. So that one plus one right there should have brought them to a realization that this man is a man of God. They knew him to be a prophet. They knew him to be, quote, a teacher, right? At this point in his life, we're going to look at it a little bit later, but, he, you know, when the woman touches the, the tassels or the hem of his garment, uh, they're wearing these kinds of cloaks, and it has, it's symbolic. It's kind of like um, the prophet's cloak that we see with Elijah and Elisha, remember? Well, he, this was what he was wearing was this prayer shawl or this cloak of some form and on it were these tassels and she touched that the tassel the hem of that so we know that he was understood to be a teacher and a prophet that's right so there was this there you and this is the constant tension that goes on in this book back and forth between who do you believe that I am and and uh, Matthew came to a head where he had to say to Peter, Peter, I know what men say, but what do you say, right? And, he, and Peter gives his, his declarative confession that he's the Christ. Yes. Yeah. And I. Well, or sometimes, like with Jairus, for instance, and his wife, who did believe, but he told them to be quiet too. So. Well, but. The ones that came into the house with him when he commit when he performed the miracle were three of his disciples, I think it was three, and Jairus and the mother. 
And Jesus implored them, and I'm assuming he was speaking to both them. Maybe not. Maybe it was just to Jairus. But he said, believe, and I'm going to do this. She is not, she is not dead. She is only sleeping. And so the result was he responded by healing her. And thus far, what we've seen is when does Jesus do these healings? By, for people who believe. So I, you're right. I don't know about Jairus' wife. But Jairus believed. And yet he told Jairus, don't speak of this. Thank you. There you go. Good job. Yes. Yes. It could have been, it could have propelled his ministry time too far along too quickly. He was going to have, as we know, three and a half years of ministry time to present himself fully to the people as the son of God, as the son of man. And in doing that, he needed to be careful. And I do think it's very interesting because one of the clues you know about why did he allow some to give a testimony and others. Remember the woman who touches the hem of his garment, he actually puts her in a position where he makes her stand up and make a declaration. Right? But then with Jairus, he says, no, be quiet. And I was going to bring it up, but we're there now, so we'll just do it now. Why, why the difference? What was the insight that was given to us about Jairus at the very beginning of the storyline, just before he heals the dead person, was that he was a, an official of the synagogue. And being an official of the synagogue meant that he had, he, he was not in cahoots, but in connection with, he had, he had connections with people of uh, power and, and position within the, the spiritual um, hierarchy of their system, Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So again, on the whole, it does seem to me like, although it's not always 100% true, but it does seem that the rule of thumb here is his opposition comes from, wh- from whom primarily? The spiritual leaders of the time. The ones who were in charge of their synagogues and of their, their people who were priests, people who were scribes, the ones who actually knew, like you said, knew the law because they're writing it. The ones who were, were fully instructed into uh, all of the insights about who the Christ would be and what God's plan was for the ages and how he dealt in ages past with certain people in certain situations they knew it all it's one of the reasons do you remember when a king would come into position in israel what was one of the things that the king was supposed to do by god's order write out the law their own record of the law they were to begin with genesis and go all the way through and write their own books of the law so that they understood every everything that god had said and every point that he was making through those records that they needed to know about who is god and who is man and who is god man in relationship to god and that's what he wanted the kings to know mm-hmm No, there isn't. That's what we were kind of talking about there. And that particular one, isn't it interesting, which is, which is again, one of those times where purely the point in there is to show what about Jesus? His compassion. That he is compassion. It makes me think of that verse that says um, that um, 
he loved us while we were yet enemies, right? And so we see that that by virtue of his deity and that he is our creator and that he understands us as as his created beings as the weaknesses that we have the infirmities that we have, he gets it and he's this great mercy and compassion he is the great high priest in these pages we are literally seeing the great high priest and how he relates to us as his created beings yeah nice Yep. Yes. So even though there was no, he got faith out of it, even though he didn't start with any faith. Yes. So, so you know, that's a good point that you guys, the, between the two of you, kind of bring up that is that in some of these accounts, it isn't about Jesus responding to our response. It's about Jesus doing what? Initiating to do yes to bring about what in other words he is setting it up so that people will come to see who he is he's making a declaration then isn't he when you when you go back to um well let's just move on to the next part because i think it's going to kind of flow into it let's do 18 to 23 then what do we see in 18 to 23 this part was real interesting john the baptist now where do we know john is at this point He's in prison, and he sent some of his disciples to speak to Jesus and ask what question? Are you the expected one? Now, do you think that's the same, a strange question for John to be asking? Why do you think he asked that question? Well, I don't know that, that that's true because Jesus says, go and tell John this. So Jesus is responding directly to John as an, as an act of real mercy. But what's interesting to me is he doesn't give a yes or no answer. He's a typical politician, right? That's the way all these, that's how nobody ever asks answers directly. But instead, he, he's actually a very good teacher is what he's being here. Because this, I remember when I was a young girl, I had teachers that would do this to me, and I just hated it. But instead of saying yes or no to a question, they would say, well, tell me what you know, right? So this is the reply that Jesus gives. Now, tell me what you know. Now, my first thing was, well, then, what was the problem here? He's wanting to know, are you the expected one? So here's what I think we need to do right now is pause for a moment and talk about the expected one. The expected one is who and, and who was he? Once we develop our subject on this, uh, the topic of this and, and mesh it all out, we're going to understand better what, what was expected of the expected one and why John might have had these questions because then you can interpret what's going on here much much better does that make sense to you okay so the expected one um, first of all it's the son of we call him here the son of the son of man part of this is not in your homework at, at all okay so I'm going to have to just kind of take you through it and you're going to have to just follow along but I know you know these all the prophecies and the promise 
of a son go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Just in case you did not understand this. He refers to himself as the son of man. Anytime he refers to himself as the son, I want your mind to immediately say, oh, the son that was promised to who? To Eve and Adam in the garden, right? So the son of man, let's go back to Genesis 3.15. Now tell me what do you know about this, this man that was... Um, promised yeah 315 he he will crush the head of Satan now that's interpretation I mean I'm, I'm parsing that out for you and drawing that conclusion I know all of you already know this but to connect this to this title son of man and to get to understand that the son of man is the expected one and what does that mean to John you have to go back to the roots of the of the subject matter and really uh, lay it out for yourself so you see it clearly now here's what happened in the garden right Adam and Eve sinned right how did they sin and what was the consequence Okay, so in essence, if you think about it, with, with Jesus, what we've seen in Luke when he was tempted, he, he was tempted by the word of God, right? The Satan threw word, things out from the word of God, twisting it, making it say something it really didn't. It's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Satan came uh, back on Eve and said, did God really say? Causing her to doubt God's word. Now, in the ministry that we see Jesus as the Son of Man doing, one of the things he's trying to do is to bring them to do what? To believe his word, right? To believe him. Okay, so the first problem in the garden was doubt. Doubting God's word. They doubted God's word. Um and therefore sin, and then sinned. Okay, now, let's talk about sin's penalty, because this is going to be helpful, I think. It's obvious when you write it up here, but when you take this, these facts in and tie it back into what we're looking at in Luke, it's going to make so much more sense to you. What was sin's penalty in the Garden of Eden? What occurred? Death. Both okay, so we have both. We have death, and it it is both physical and spiritual, right? What else happened? What was another consequence? Okay, they did get cast out of the garden, and it's and in pictorial uh, way of viewing that is what was it that they lost? What were they no longer allowed to have, or what were they cut off from? The tree of life and? That's right. Fellowship with God the Father. Before the sin, what were they doing in the garden? They were walking with God himself. So now their fellowship with God had been broken, right? So they lost fellowship with God. So it's a separation from God. They lost that fellowship in its fullest form, right? Um, the other things that came about were then consequently not just death, but sometimes if you don't die, what else can happen? 
you can get sick, right? So there's sickness and, and uh, disease. All right, so these are some of the things that were con And then uh, you said the curses, but I think about also n not only if you think about the fact that God is light, and in their fellowship with God, they literally walked with the God of light. Now what is their world really going to be in contrast to that is what? Darkness. And who was it that brought this to them in their darkness? Satan himself. So they have spiritual battles now that are going on in their life where before they did not have that. So there is a spiritual consequence to this in the spiritual realm. So now there is battle with... Um, uh, spiritual darkness. Well, but I'm just saying, what's the consequence of? Is that they were now turned over to this, and this was something that now is a perpetual thing. Prior to this day in moment, they had walked with God, obeyed God. We don't see Satan there tempting them or causing the. He may have been there, who knows? But it doesn't say that. Scripture tells us that they were in fellowship with God. They walked with God. They were in obedience to God. They were enjoying the pleasures and the delights of the perfect garden and paradise that they were given. After after sin, after they they doubted God's word and they sinned, the penalty is death, which was both physical and spiritual. It's separation from God, in other words, from his fellowship, his presence with them. Uh, sickness and disease entered in, and then there was spiritual darkness, which has to do with uh, demonic uh, battles. Right? So these are some of the consequences that came about. Does this sound familiar? Wow. Are you starting to make a little bit of connection already with what we're looking at in Luke? The, co the, the coming of the Son of Man was to do what? Yes. Okay, that's where we're heading, and I think this is exactly what he's meaning. They under I. Okay, let's let's go let's go a little bit further with this. What was it that God promised to Eve when she said, when He said, "Okay, now you've done this. Now what am I going to do in response? What was His consequence? What was the consequence, and what was His promise?" Yeah. Okay, so God promised a seed, right? And he said he will crush the head. This is the seed right here. And the seed is going to crush the head of Satan. So they were looking for a seed. And the seed is who? Well, let's go forward in time to Genesis chapter 12. What did God do? promise to Abraham a seed and we've done this one over and over and over so I don't want to go into a lot of detail on it but just to remind you he said to him I am going to give you a land a seed and a nation and then concerning that seed although he literally does have his own offspring his son Abraham uh, he has Isaac and and then generations that follow that but was God meaning uh his biological son, um, Isaac, when he said, I'm going to give you a seed. Yes. 
well, yes, in that that's this, the bloodline through which things were going to happen, but no, because literally what was the interpretation in Galatians chapter 3? There you go. And that seed is Christ. So what was promised to, to Abraham was a seed, a son. The same seed that was promised to, to Adam and Eve in the garden. When sin entered into the world, God says, I'm going to see, uh, send a seed. He's going to crush the head of Satan. He's going to, he's basically, he's going to be for you a savior and a redeemer. He's going to save you from the penalty of sin, which is what? Death. And he's going to redeem you back, bring you back into fellowship with me and bring you back to be my people. What does God want most of all from us? He wants to be our Lord, our King, our God, right? He wants us to have relationship with him, fellowship with him. And so this is what is going to be uh, restored. It's what they had in the garden prior, but they've lost. God says, I'm promising you a seed. He says that in Galatia, or in Genesis, I'm going to give it 12, 1 to 3 is the very beginning of the, of the storyline on that. And you can go to Genesis 15 and 18 and 21 and so forth and pick up all the other pieces on that but repeatedly over and over he says and through this seed I am going to bless you and all nations of the earth through your seed right don't get too detailed but yes <laughs> okay because I'm just trying to present who's this who is this seed in in relationship to what we're looking at here so that you understand when he says um when John the Baptist has this question about who are are you actually the expected one? He's trying to figure out something, right? We know that John has tons of insight about this. He understood the supernatural, his own supernatural coming because his mom and dad were beyond years to give birth and yet they gave birth. So they understand that that he was literally a gift from God to them. He understand. I'm. Uh, he understood fully because he was living it. The prophetic utterances of his father, um, uh, Zechariah, about him being the forerunner to the expected one, and he did exactly what was prophetically uttered of him. He grew up with that word, right? He knew about it. He also knew about Mary, and about the baby that she carried in her her womb, and he had a total confidence in his life that was who that was supposed to be but then what happened Jesus came he began to do these things that he was seeing and hearing about but something was not quite fully there he started having doubts right because he sent word back and he said are you the expected one or should we expect someone else he's asking a question so he's having just a little glimmer of Something is, is, is needling him to say, hmm, I, th I thought I knew, but now I'm a little doubtful. And so our question needs to be, why is he having a little bit of doubt? And what is it that's missing from this picture that's causing him to have doubt at this point? Yes. Thank you. 
Maybe, maybe, but I do think he's literally saying, he's, he, it says it, the, he said, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else, right? So what we have to do is develop our understanding of what they expected of who the, who the expected one was. So we're almost, we're about halfway there. I'm going to show you the rest. Absolutely. There you go. Yes. So you're absolutely right. From the, from that one, which is why I put this list up here. I wanted you to see that these are the things that Jesus actually was doing, and th therefore. That is the part that Jesus points him back to, and he says, go tell him what you hear and see, right? But the question is still lingering there as to what else did he expect of Jesus? If he had heard all of these things that Jesus was doing, what else was he expecting that was causing him angst? There you go. He was also expecting this expected one to not just restore um, the spiritual qualities of things and to heal the lame and to raise people from the dead. But he was also expecting a king. And this is where the problem came. So when he was seeing the picture from the perspective of, well, he is fulfilling all this, but you know what? I kind of thought that our king was coming back to rule and reign in the land. What had God promised to them? What were some of the other things that, that's right, and that I will restore you to the land, and I will return the government back into your hand, and you will, you will rule and reign in your own land, on your own possession. Right now, who's ruling and reigning on their land? Rome is. So it didn't look like Jesus was filling that other part of this quality, the expected one. Now, is Jesus going to do yet do that? But see, here was the problem about the expected one. And this is why John had the question. He could see that Jesus was fulfilling part of it, but what he did not expect was it was a two-pronged coming. He did not know that it was a coming the first time to handle the spiritual realm of things and then the secondarily to handle the physical kingdom rule. So this... After 12.3, you can go into Galatians 3.16. The seed is Christ. I want you to have that information right there. All of Galatians 3 is an interpretation on uh, the Abrahamic covenant, which is really cool. Now, it was necessary, to, however, to make the events of what God was going to do so impossible that by human standards... It would be impossible to explain it all away as it was being fulfilled, which is why we see so many supernatural fulfillments through Jesus' uh, birth and where he was born, when he was born, you know, uh, through what lineage and all these other connecting qualities. So in Luke, we have seen the amazing record of the birth of the forerunner, the miraculous conception of Mary. We've done that already. We've seen the birth of Jesus as this part of God's plan has come into fulfillment. The Son of Man has, in fact, come, okay? 
Born to, remember in Luke 2, 1, born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Savior, all these are synonymous terms. They're all, they're all the same person, the seed, and it's the seed that was promised to Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay, so you, you can connect all that, that, that title form of Son of Man and Messiah and the Christ and catch this, the fullness of this picture. It's going to be really helpful to you that it was the promised seed to Adam and Eve in the garden. Yes. Yes. Because, and this is what he does over and over. And he and literally, there are points in there where he literally says, I, I am. And he uses the phrase, the I am word, which is the word that of God that, or the name of God that God gave to Israel when he introduced himself to Israel. The I am. And so, yes, Jesus was doing that. And it's, what I have been surprised in when I come back and do these Gospels, is how early in his ministry he really started out there. He didn't, he didn't mince words with those who had ears to hear. He let them know right from the beginning, this is who I am. As a matter of fact, why do you think Jesus was doing these miracles? To prove that he is I am. Yes. To prove he is the Messiah, the Christ, the, the Son of Man, the expected one who John is now asking this question about, are you the expected one or should we expect someone else? Why was he asking the question? Because Jesus was coming and he was fulfilling a portion of it, but there was another big portion which had to do with the kingdom rule as the king on this earth in Jerusalem over, over his people, restoring Israel to its, its power position in the world. It had lost it all the way back in the days of Babylon. In all those hundreds or thousands of years, they, are, they have been now, even today, off the land, now back on the land. Finally, they're beginning to uh, get their, their, um, their land restored to them. And what we're seeing is Ezekiel and some of these other passages are beginning to come fulfilled. But they hadn't in his day. So John was saying, should we expect someone else? I see you doing this, but... Part of the picture is missing, and I'm confused. Yes, he is. Yes. But they weren't. There you go. So that's where I wanted to take us to, was for you to come to see. When, he's, when John is asking this question, are, are you the expected one? John was confused because he wasn't expecting a two-prong coming of this expected one. And because Jesus was fulfilling a part of that quality, which has, which is dealing with all this, sin's penalty and so forth, he's dealing with all that. But he had not yet actually fulfilled the other quality, which is the kingdom rule. They didn't see, Jesus was not coming in to establish himself as king on the land in a real physical way, but he will. He is yet to do that. Second coming. Exactly. At his second coming, he will do that. All right. Now, um, okay, these accounts are not, a, uh, are, not, are not able to be explained away, but by their own merit, it must be either willfully rejected or accepted by faith. 
And that's what we see demonstrated through the Pharisees and the woman then that believes that, that follows this. Okay, so let's, let's go on now and take a look at, you know what, let's do the kingdom. Let's do, do I have to, yes, I do have time. Let's do the kingdom one first. Let's also talk about the kingdom of God and what does that mean? Because w there are times in here where Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, right? But what was their concept of the kingdom of God? Again, it, it's that two, there's two different qualities of it. And if, if you don't realize it, then it's going to constantly be a little thorn that bothers you. Okay, the kingdom is, of God is both a present reality and a future certainty. It has, it has two qualities to it. The first quality is the present one for us. Number one... It's the kingdom, the kingdom is now at hand. That's what Jesus says, right? He says it over and over in various ways. Starting with the days of Jesus, that was the truth. And so how is that possible? How is it that the kingdom of God is available and in place right now for us? Wow, you got it, girl. Good. Okay. Tell, tell me, how is Jesus king today for you and I who believe? There you go. He's king in our heart. How did he become king in our heart? Yeah. And what does Ezekiel tell us that he's going to do in this new covenant that we've entered? Yes, and place his spirit within you, and he's going to do with the law? Rather lighter. When he is the lawgiver, and you're allowing his spirit to rule in your heart, what is he now king of? Your heart. He is now, that. this is the spiritual kingdom of God, which began in those days of Jesus at the birthing of the new covenant. At the moment the Holy Spirit was giving on the day of Pentecost, the, the kingdom of God began to be initiated, but there was only one quality of it that was being initiated, but it was the part that has to do with the spiritual realm in our hearts. In Ezekiel, or no, in Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34, it's where Brenda just mentioned about, he said, I'm going to, in that day, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, and I'm going to place my spirit in you. I'm going to write my laws on your heart. It's also in Ezekiel 36. I think 24, 25, 26, somewhere in there, okay? So you might want to look at those. So the kingdom of God is at hand. It's in our hearts by the Spirit. Okay, I'm going to give you Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah uh, 31. This one, I've got the numbers on, 33 to 34. I think this one is like 24 to 27. I'm, I'm kind of guessing on that, but I think that was right. Um, in Mark 1, 15, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's how you enter into that kingdom. 
okay? Luke 17, 21, it says the kingdom of God is in your midst. He was speaking about his presence, that he was the king to come, and he, he was presently in our midst at that time when he was here. So that's that one. But there's another part, so I'm going to put a but on here. Number two, there's an earthly kingdom. which has to do with King David, the promises to King David, and to Israel, the nation. We see this in Romans 11 also where he says um, the promises to Israel are irrevocable, that God will fulfill them, okay? It's an earthly uh, kingdom to come. And this is why John asked the question, question, are you him or is there another one yet to come, okay? And this is why he was confused. You can understand why he'd be confused, right? Because they had not separated those two qualities of who the the Savior was going to be. They knew a seed was coming, and he was going to be the Son of God, and he was going to save them from their sins. He was going to restore their relationship and fellowship with God. He was going to crush the head of Satan. Well, he, he did all those things. But the secondary part of the physical earthly kingdom was not coming to fruition at that time in history, and John was confused. Not fully. And actually, we're not there yet, but yeah, that's going to even throw him even for a bigger loop is when he actually comes to the place where he's, like, for instance, Peter, and why Peter goes through the doubt, because there they are, they've been following him. They really did think he was going to usher in the kingdom, and then he ends up arrested, and so then Peter goes through his his th- his three questions do you know jesus says do you love me do you love me do you love me right and he restores him i love that um so this is the, uh, this is talking about the millennial reign and the kingdom after that there is going to be a millennial kingdom we if you go on in jeremiah i think it's in 29 i might be wrong on that or 30 but it goes on and it talks about I did a really cool Christmas gift this year with a bell, and I and I did a verse out of Zechariah that talks about in that day, on the bells of the horses will be written holy unto the Lord, and it talks about from this gate to this gate it will all be holy unto the Lord. One day God will come, Jesus will come, He will rule and reign on this earth. That's why you can be rest assured, global warming is not going to be a problem. <laughs> Until the day when God burns it up. <laughs> then you've got global bur- bur- warming coming. But right now, we don't have to worry about that. Jesus is going to rule and reign on this earth 1,000 years. Okay, he says uh, it's an earthly kingdom to come. It's going to be a millennial reign. I'm going to give you Ezekiel 36, 23 to 38 as a reading place. You can go and take a, a, a a bigger look at it on your own. But uh, at that time, also, besides the kingdom ruling in it, in that day, God will be vindicated. We saw that when we did our, our Ezekiel study over and over. It says, and in that day, my, my name, which is holy, which you have profaned among the people, it will be vindicated. All right, so that's the second part, and that's what's missing for John right about it was why he was so confused 
Jesus was ushering in the kingdom of God, yet it is a progressive work, which was not which was not what was expected. That's not what they were expecting. They thought it was all coming in one package deal at one appearance. John's expectations were greater than what he was seeing. Uh, but there was no denying the miraculous works and the fulfillments of scripture that John had seen thus far. So Jesus was asking John, this is really important, you guys. We're going to get into in uh, later in uh, 24 uh, where Jesus is speaking to the men on the road to Emmaus. And he's going to draw out of their hearts the same act of faith that he's asking from John right here. He's literally saying, John, I want you to evaluate what you know from scripture and what, he, what you have seen thus far, and I want you to believe that God is doing exactly as he said he would. I have checked all these boxes. I've done all these things. You know the, the history in our family and in, and in your birth, in my birth. You've seen what has transpired so far. And up to this point, you've seen the miracles that I've been performing. You've heard of my testimony in Nazareth that in your hearing, these words have been fulfilled. Did you notice in that record there in chapter, was it uh, two or three, I guess it was, where, or four, where Jesus sits down in the temple and he reads out of, um, out of the scriptures of Isaiah and, and he stops short of the end time events. But he says, these have been fulfilled in your, in your hearing. Right? Isn't that awesome? How this whole thing, it really does, if you slow down and really study, this is why we love our inductive study so much, because if you slow it down, it all, cl it all clears up. But a lot of it has to do with I identifying who is the expected one. It was the seed, and yes, they knew it. They knew who the seed was. They knew who they were expecting. They just were expecting more of him. They, what, what they didn't know was part B, was separate from part A. Part A, he came to be the savior of our hearts, the king of our hearts. And in part B, he will come to be a literal king in the land. Nope. Nope. You're right. Yes. I, and, and why he doesn't, I don't know. What I'm saying to you is... The reason, John, why was John asking the question? Was he doubting his faith? Yeah, kind of. He was seeing a part of the picture being fulfilled, but he wasn't seeing the full picture. So he was asking Jesus, I'm confused here. Are you the expected one or should we expect someone else? He just, it, was, it was a very logical, in his mind, very logical question to ask because he was expecting the total package to be accomplished in Jesus' first coming. And the rest of it had not yet been revealed. And why isn't it being fulfilled? Well, because Jesus is yet to go to the cross, and he has to go to the cross. So some of the insights and some of the understandings about who Jesus is, he's actually holding back. On, on the road to Emmaus, you're going to see the same thing happen after his resurrection. When Jesus first appears to them, he does not allow them to to even know who he is at first. He, he purposefully cloaks his identity from them. And then he begins to ask them questions. Tell me what you know from the law and the prophets about the expected one. And they begin to tell. And as they start to tell it, he's just going, uh-huh, oh, that's interesting. Uh-huh, oh, yeah, that's, that's right. I, that happened, didn't it? Uh-huh, yeah. I mean, and pretty soon, 
what happens? Their eyes are opened. Isn't that amazing how Jesus does that? In the story of the sower and the seeds, this is what he does. He throws out information. Yes, he does a lot of it in parables, and he does it to cloak it to those whose hearts will not hear, that have hardened. But he gives it in parable form for those who really are hungry and want to know, and he tries to do it in that way so that it's more clear to us more understandable to us, not to hide it, not to make it more difficult, but to actually make it easier. Although, in my case, it's actually harder, but (laughs) it's because I'm not, I wasn't born at that time. Okay, so now we know what the kingdom of God is talking about, right? When he speaks about the kingdom of God, there's actually two qualities, and in their mind, just know this, in the mind of these people that we're reading right here, every time he mentions the kingdom of God, they're expecting A, part A, and part B. And they're expecting them to both come at the same time. They just don't fully know the plan of God yet. That God is going to divide this up in history, and he's going to accomplish part one first, and then go on to part two later. And we are yet to this day waiting on it. Are we walking by faith that part two is going to happen? Yes. But did, did God do everything he's already said he would do thus far? Yes. This is the question he's posing to John. John, what have you seen thus far? Do you believe it? Is it exactly what God said he would do? And if so, the answer is yes, I am the expected one. He he didn't say yes. He just said, what do you hear and what do you see? And then he quotes Isaiah. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And that is what Isaiah said will be the expected one, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Christ. He will do those things. So you can go back to the expected one, promised in the Garden of Eden, promised to Abraham. And in Galatians 3.16, that seed is Christ, is interpreted for us. And now we see the kingdom is come in our hearts. That part is fulfilled. All right. Excellent. So we got two real big hang-ups handled. Now we're going to look, um, let's finish up, let's see how much time we've got. Oh, I wish we had more time. Okay, we'll do it very fast. 18 to 23, then he says, his answer to him basically is don't take offense, therefore, right? What do you see in here? So he's asking him a question. I don't know how you titled it. You can title it whatever you, you know, whatever you think is best. But do not take offense is Jesus's order to him. Um, and in a way, it's kind of interesting because one of the problems with the Pharisees and Sadducees is they are taking offense. They're angered by what they're seeing in Jesus. And so they're taking offense at everything that he does. And th- that's what we see next. And so then he says to him, what do you see and hear. So evaluate it, and that's your answer. And then 24 to 30 then is what? John the Baptist. And what's interesting is in the the conclusion of it, he says about John, John is great, but what? 
Is, that's right. So what does that mean? Did anybody look at that? Okay, the, pa the, the verse is, I'm sorry, say it again. Yeah, in 28, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So what does that mean? Okay, how does that make us greater? Okay, very good. Excellent. Did everybody catch that? Are you following what she's saying? Why is John greater? Well, let me just give you a rundown. I'm going to give you some verses. These are going to be fun for you. Okay, so this is Luke 7, uh, verse 28, and he, and he makes a contrast. He says there is no one uh, greater than John, right? And I shortened it to just, John is great. <laughs> but he who is in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Okay. Now, the best way to interpret this is to evaluate then what Jesus is comparing. And it looks to me like he has something to do with whoever is in the kingdom is better than John. And so what is John not in? He's not in the kingdom that's coming, the new kingdom that Jesus is coming to introduce. It hasn't yet been brought to its fullness, right? Because how do we get the kingdom? by the spirit in the heart, right? So although the kingdom of God is at hand and it's in your midst because of Jesus, but it's not actually fully implemented until what happens? Until the Holy Spirit comes and then the kingdom is literally in our hearts at that point. Up to that point, he's introducing it to us. He's bringing us the understanding that he's fulfilling the promise of the seed, the son that was to come. So in Luke 7 then, whoever is in this kingdom which is the spirit on the heart, right, is greater than John because what is John under? He's still under law. So the law versus the new covenant, old covenant versus new covenant is what this says. So here I'm going to give you a bunch of verses, and we're not going to go through them because we don't have time. But I'm going to give them to you on the, on the board here. John 8, 56. The, now, the, oh, you know what? Let me start you with this one. This one's really, I do want to look this one up. This is actually in Luke, so it's great because it's the same author and the same flow of thought. Look up Luke 16, 16, somebody, and read that. Wow. Okay, so before with John, what was being preached? The law and the prophets, which is what I just put up there, right? And since then, what's being preached? The gospel of the kingdom of God. So there's your contrast. Luke 16, 16 tells you basically what the contrast is here. Now go into John 8, 56, go in, then move into Hebrews 11, 13, 
uh, Hebrews 8, 6, Hebrews 9, 11, and 12, and also Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 10, and then ended up in 19 and 20. And I'm just going to read some of these. Um, in John 8, 56, it says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, speaking of Jesus' day, right? In Hebrews 11, it says, But all these, all these men and women of faith in this hall of fame that we see in Hebrews 11, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, right? Hebrews 8, 6 says, But now Jesus has obtained what? A more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. So it's all better. It's a better thing that Jesus has brought in. This new covenant that that is be, anyone, he says, anyone, any he who is in the kingdom of God is in a better position than John is greater. He's not putting John down. He's not criticizing John in any way. He's just simply saying it's better to be in the new covenant than in the old. Yeah. Boy, isn't it? Okay, so let me give you these other verses. Um, he says um, in Hebrews uh, 9, 11, and 12, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. We, we did away with the old system of the tabernacle. We have now, a, uh, ha, he has entered into the more perfect tabernacle, the heavenly one. In Hebrews 10, um, I've given you verses 1 through 10 and then 19 and 20, and I just have a little synoptic statement here. Um, the law was only a shadow of the good things to come. We now have a new and living way, which Jesus inaugurated for us through the veil. That is his flesh. Isn't that cool? What does that make you think of? It's a new and living way. Does that remind you of a chapter we've looked at in Luke already? It was saying you can't mix the old with the new. Oh, yeah. Don't try to put new wine in old wineskins, right? Because there, I'm giving you something new. And he was making that clear to them. There's a new covenant entering. Now, that didn't seem clear to us was very clear to them. In the context of the flow of thought of what was going on in that conversation, he was warning them, you can't have the old and the new. And the Pharisees at that point were criticizing the way his disciples were doing things. And they were mad because they weren't, um, they weren't fasting, right? And he says, they don't fast when the bridegroom is among them. I am introducing something new. It's not, not the old way that you uh, used to have. Or used to do. Okay, so here's Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. Hebrews 10. You could actually just do all of Hebrews and you'd be good. Hebrews 10, 1 to 10, and then 19 and 20. Those will at least give you the basic concept of why is it saying that John, that anyone in this new kingdom is greater than John because the old is better, or the new is better than the old. Yes. Yes. Right. And, the, and that, is, that is the danger in trying to read into it. What we do know is Jesus is not demeaning John. He doesn't do that, right? We know, God, we know Jesus better than that. He loves and he has compassion. He doesn't demean people. He was simply letting everyone understand that as great as John was, because what was the danger of these people here? 
at this point. If they're seeing Jesus as the expected one and they're seeing John as the forerunner, you know, what happened under the old system with those that they kind of thought were getting some special place with God or what did they tend to do with, oh, say, David or Moses or, you know, any of those? Up on a pedestal, right? They exalted them and they, they held them high. And but, but this is interesting. Jesus is literally saying, look, all of you, he's gr- yes, John is great. He's blessed. He was blessed of God to be the chosen forerunner of Christ. I foretold for, for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years by, prior to his birth. And he fulfilled all those things. Yay, John. But guess what? Any one of you is greater than John in that you're greater blessed. I like that, that concept, just adding in that word. You are great, more greatly blessed than John because we're in the new. All right. Let's see. Oh, got five or six minutes here. We've got to hurry. Okay. We covered the major subject, the expected one, the kingdom of God. We now understand what it means to be greater uh, in the in the new kingdom versus John in the old. Now we want to just go back and finish up our chapter titles very quickly, because what we are seeing in these, all of these, is exactly what the expected one was supposed to do. He was come to conquer death, to uh, reestablish our relationship and fellowship with God, uh, basically by bringing us into this new kingdom, right? putting Jesus back on the throne, allowing God to walk in our midst again. And that's what the the new kingdom is going to be all about. He's conquering sickness and disease. The penalty of sin is death, and he is conquering that. Spiritual darkness, demonics. How many demonics does he cast out in all of these, these accounts that were being given? Is he the expected one? Just based on that. Yes. It's an emphatic yes. And that's what this, that's the cool thing of the way the record is being laid out too because he says this is a concise uh, account. I'm giving you just in precision, I'm laying it out for you clearly. This is the son of man. This is the expected one. The seed that God promised back in the garden. This is him. Okay, 24 to 30. This is where we see the Pharisees, and what do they do? <laughs> they reject. They reject both, and they rejected both uh, John and Jesus, right? And God's purpose for them. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty, a pretty bold statement there. Then if you see in uh, 24 to 30, what, what did I do? I missed, I missed the 24 to 30. I should have had John up here. John is great, but you're greater. <laughs> but in the kingdom... We are greater. 
or we who are in the ki in the kingdom. That's 24 to 30. So that was that one. And this one is 30 to 30, 31 to 35. I'll get it right. Then the last one is 36 to 50 in chapter uh, 7. What And who do we see there? I drew a pretty picture of a little, of a lady crying over Jesus's feet. <laughs> I love this, this storyline here. I, I just love her heart. Do you not love her heart? What were some of the insights that you pulled from looking at who this woman was, how Jesus responded to her, what, what you and I are to uh, aspire to as his children? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So grateful that she can't stop crying. Do you, do you guys ever remember back when you first came into faith, how that was, you just were overwhelmed with it all? And the tears would just come so easily, and all you could do was just, you just couldn't, yeah, you just couldn't hold back the joy. It was co a combination of joy and I don't know, just over, it was just an overwhelming fe feeling of feeling safe and secure and forgiven and at peace with God finally. It almost felt like your whole world changed and your eyes literally do open. You see the world differently from that moment forward. This is the sinful woman. She is at his feet crying, anointing him. Yes. Yes. You you rejected God. So I see a rejection, and I see this one is as a woman who is forgiven. And so what a contrast that is between the two people group, the one group of all, of all of them that should have accepted what God had to say and should have been anticipating the coming seed, the the Messiah should have. They should have seen it all, and should have seen all these miracles and seen how he was fulfilling everything. All these, all these old uh, Old Testament texts about the coming Messiah and what qualities they were to look for him, and there he was fulfilling them. When you look at your list, he he ticks off every single one of these things on the list of what separated us from God to begin with, and what was this seed supposed to restore, and there he is doing every one of them. Mm -hmm. the they would not. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Which, and yes, yes. Okay, chapter 8, we see 1 to 3. It's a kind of a little excerpt, just in case you didn't know this. This is the only of all the Gospels, it's the only one that makes mention of this. It's kind of one of those practicality statements that shows how Jesus' ministry is being supported. But there's also a subliminal message in it about those who are supporting him. It, again, it kind of portrays that it's not necessarily the highfalutin. It's not the wealthy of the world. It's necessarily, although one of them comes from a family that may have some money. But um, 
primarily it's just saying people who believed him support him. Does that kind of challenge you and I? In a little, in a various, I mean, just that three verses could be used as a, as a, 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 a preface to taking up the offering plate at church, maybe, you know? Because, you know, if you really love him and you really believe him, you would support him. These women are demonstrations of that. The, the 12 apostles who followed him everywhere, they were demonstrating that, their support and, and um, belief in, in him. So um, I don't know how you, how you wrote it. Give me some titles, you guys. Uh, okay, good. That works. Because it's really kind of um, when it part it's it's in here, and I know it has a reason. I can't quite figure out the flow on it, except that it just shows his humanity. Don't you think it shows Jesus's human need, and therefore, and there was a support system that was there for him. Right. Exactly. That's right. The ones who love are the ones who will support. Okay, for, uh, for Luke 8, 4 to 15 is our parable, right? I wish we had time to go through it. What, what would you, do you have questions on it? Any kind of thoughts that you want to share about that before we? No? I know everybody wants to t- talk about it, but nobody wants to talk about it, huh? <laughs> it's, it was a real, I had a very lengthy conversation with a friend of mine in Alabama. Bama that she's doing this with us through uh, podcast and um, she, she called me last night and she said her pastor turns out he preached out of Luke 2 this week and so she was really excited but she, she had had a conversation concerning the soils and the seed and people's interpretation and ha- there was a bit of, an, of a disagreement uh, in her Sunday school class basically about you know what is the interpretation on this? What is your conclusion about the four soils? We know the seed is what? The word of God itself. And what are the soils? There are hearts of people. The different hearts that people, when the word of God is given to heart, it's given to mine and yours and two or three or five or eight or ten other people, each of us have our own soil, so to speak. And so he's describing the various kinds of soil, right? Um, which soil is the beneficial soil and what is the result of the other three? The good soil is the beneficial because it produces a be- of a fruit. It bears fruit. It also perseveres in what they've received, right? So I loved it because it says they re- they those hearts receive the word, they hold it fast, they bear fruit, and they persevere. That's a pretty cool list, right? The other ones, what happens? Yeah, and in all of their cases, they eventually either they never come because they actually refuse, right? In the first case, they refuse to to come. In the other cases, they fall away, right? They kind of take, does that explain to you how sometimes people can look like they're coming into faith? They, They get all jubilant in church on a Sunday morning. Maybe they walk an aisle, but then all of a sudden, a few weeks pass, maybe a few months pass, and pretty... Pretty soon, or a year even passes, and pretty soon they're 
They're back into their old lifestyle, their old way. God is on a shelf. Church is on a shelf. Bible is on a shelf. Have you noticed that? These are the people that the other soils are describing. So we have one good soil. The rest are not good soil. There's one true person who truly received the word. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's what Jesus is saying and all those other things. Hear again. As a matter of fact, he starts this one off, the parable off, by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear. So the one who has an ear to hear is the one with good soil. The other, the other three are unproductive, unfruitful. If there's no fruit, what? There's no life. There's no salvation. Right. Okay. Very good. All right. So four, uh, four to 15, how do you want to title that one? You could just parable of, uh, of uh, seed and soil. Okay. That or those who have ears to hear, hold it fast and bear fruit. I kind of took my titles. I'm just going to run through them because we're out of time. Um, I kind of took my titles and made them proactive uh, uh, responses to having actually heard the word with a with a heart that was good and so I did it this way in 4 to 15 I put those who have ears to hear hold it fast and bear fruit you could make that lengthier but I those were the two most essentials uh, 16 to 18 those who receive the light what more will be given or let it be seen right those are all, all, both of those are the more will be giving is a is a great exhortation, but what do you better be doing with the light that you have been given? Don't hide it under a, a bushel. Don't don't put it away where people don't see it. If you have received the light, if you've truly received the light, it needs to be seen, right? Okay. What do you think that means? W it could be witnessing. And, and witnessing is in varieties of forms, right? It could be verbal witnessing, but it could also, could also be what? Just your lifestyle, the fruits out of your life itself, right? How, what, what you do, what you think, how you live, what, you know, who you spend your time with, what you devote your time and money to, all those things are letting your light shine. Okay, 19 to 21, those who do my word are my mother and brothers. I love this one. What a kind thing for Jesus to do in the midst of all this is to say, look, I just want you to know you're actually my family. If you have ears to hear, you're my family. Isn't that, I just, I love to know that he, he endears us in that way. You're my brothers, you're my mother, you're my family. Okay, and then he goes, uh, makes a switch. So in the, on the first half, 1 through 21, it's all about making declarations about who will be in the kingdom of God, right? Those who hear, those who obey, those who hold fast, those who let their light be seen. Those are the people who are going to be in my kingdom. And then he goes secondarily on verse 22 then to 56, and he demonstrates how his word has authority and power. You can believe it. You can trust it. You, it. It is going to transform your life, and I'm going to show you the power of it. And he demonstrates it. So he does it with the wind and the water in 22 to 25. Um, he does it in 26 to 39 where he casts out the legion of demons. 
40 to 48, the woman is healed of her hemorrhage, which it, it was very interesting to go back and look at that again and to see, again, the defilement of blood and why blood is, causes defilement. Why did we say blood causes defilement in the old system of the law? What was blood reserved for? Life is in the blood, and blood is reserved for the altar, and the altar only. It's, a, it's for atonement of sin, and that's why God, uh, any time they came into touch or contact with blood, they, there had to be some kind of cleansing they'd have to go through, um, just because they needed to keep that as a high holy article of understanding. Okay, and then 49 to 56, Jairus believed, and what happened? He raised his daughter from the dead again. He's fulfilling everything that the seed was promised to do. Restore, uh, the, the, or to basically fix sin's penalty, which was death, right? So we see him raising people from the dead. He, he, to restore our separation from God, so in that fellowship with God, so the kingdom of God is going to come and going to abide in our hearts. We're going to have fellowship with him once again. It's going to be restored. Sickness and diseases are, are healed and spiritual darkness is overcome. Those spiritual demonic forces are put aside. So it's, an, it, it's been a really good lesson. I wish that we were more time to actually just, you know, spend in each of these subjects. Did you guys have any other insights that you wanted to share or ask? Okay.